Well, so far we've learned that um, there's an attack on masculinity, but it's really an attack on all human beings. And Satan was attacking femininity first. And we've seen what it, the definition of masculinity is. We've seen why it matters. And then we've seen why we kind of go the other way. We've seen the fall that all people were created in God's image, but we now have a sinful nature and the curse from the fall makes us want to do the opposite of what we need to be. And one of those things was passivity in men and a lack of taking accountability for who and what we are. And so now we're going to see why that becomes such a struggle because we have a liar, the Satan that's at us all the time. Now, so far, I think what I've said for the most part hasn't been very controversial or well, at least not for most Christians, but today is where we start to get a little bit deeper and a few people may get a little bit more upset at, at the directness of what we're going to talk about when it comes to masculinity, because we're going to talk about the lies of Satan. Who is Satan? What does he want? And what are his lies specific to masculinity? So everybody knows the cliche of the cop and the donut, right? Um, cops, donuts, it's like the big joke. Well, actually, that's a real story that comes with that. And it comes from the Los Angeles Police Department. So <clears throat> back in the 1940s, I think it was, there was a homeless guy standing on the side of the road. His wife had just kicked him out of the house and he had nowhere to go. And an L.A. cop starts talking to this guy and he says, thinks this guy's got a lot of promise. So he gives the guy twenty dollars and says, I believe in you. Go make something of yourself. Now, twenty bucks for a cop in Los Angeles in the 40s was a pretty good chunk of change. Well, that guy went out and started Winchell's Donuts. And George Winchell, after that, said, no police officer can pay for food here. So coffee and donuts were free. Well, all the cops then started going there for coffee because back at 2, 3 in the morning, you know, working night watch or morning watch um, as a department, where were you going to get coffee? Well, that's where. So pretty soon you start seeing cop cars all lined up at all the Winchell's Donut shops because that's where they're getting the free coffee. And the joke started. That policeman at the time didn't know the effect he was going to have on not only that man's life and on business, but on American culture of cops and donuts. And that's the case for a lot of us, that we, one of the crowns that were promised, there's five crowns were promised by Jesus, and one of them is a crown of rejoicing. And that crown will be all the people that we see the judgment seat of Christ, whom we've affected, whom we we will not even know so many of the people. We gave them a bit of money. We gave them a word of encouragement. We, we preached the word of God. Uh, we may have led one person to Christ who led thousands to Christ. If you go to the Billy Graham Museum, there's a cool little thing there about the hierarchy of Billy Graham. And it shows Dwight Moody led someone to Christ, who led someone to Christ, who led someone to Christ, who led Billy Graham to Christ. And so this kind of straight, you know, maybe the greatest evangelist at, you know, of the 19th century to the greatest evangelists of the 20th century. And so we don't always know the effects that we'll have. We have a liar, the Satan, who is trying to ensure that we do not carry out the mission that we've been given. And those lies can take on a huge effect on all of us. And so we wanna look at who Satan is and what his lies are so we know how to combat them. So we ask ourselves, what if every Christian was carrying out the mandate of Christ? What if every Christian was out going out and making disciples of all men? What if just one out of 10, what if one out of 10 Christians led one person to Christ and discipled them? What would that do to the world? You know, there's a, a illustration people use for compound interest. And that is if you put a drop of water into an NFL stadium, in each minute you doubled it. 
So you put a drop of water a minute later, two, and then a minute later, four, and a minute later, eight. In 50 minutes, that stadium would be full of water. But here's the thing. At 45 minutes, that stadium is only 7% filled with water. That's the effect of compound interest that how much you, you really don't see much and all of a sudden it's like this. And that's the case in our lives. As we give our life to Christ, as we deny self and go out and pour ourselves in out into others. And the problem is there's too few people who are doing that. So one of the things is how do we recognize when it's Satan who's speaking to us? And here's the important thing. Each one of us was born hearing the devil's voice. Every human being on earth was born naturally a slave of Satan, a slave of sin, a slave of the flesh and of this world. And so as we were born, we heard our own voice and we heard the voice of our flesh and we heard the, the liar, the Satan. When we got saved, when we had the Holy Spirit put inside of us, we now had the ability to hear the Holy Spirit. We now had the ability to walk away from sin and no longer be a slave to sin. But that voice of the devil, that habit of hearing that is still there. And so many times one of his greatest lies to us is that as we've gone through trauma, he will grab a hold of that trauma, even as little kids, and he will, like a wedge bar, he'll put it in there and he'll keep on prying and keep on prying, keep on with that lie that that sexual abuse you suffered when you were a little child, that was your fault. Now that failure that you had, you're always gonna fail. That sin, that sin problem you have, that's an addiction, you, you can't get rid of it, you have to sin. And he keeps cranking and cranking and cranking. But how do we hear his voice in the everyday life? And one of the ways we can start dealing with this, but one of the ways we can tell is by learning to know his voice versus the Holy Spirit's voice versus our own voice. And so how do we know? Well, Satan has some things he loves to do. He is the great accuser, the Bible says. He is a murderer and he's a liar. And so what he likes to do is accuse. So when we hear his voice, his favorite word is hurry. You got to do this now. Get going, get going right now. If you don't hurry up and buy that car, someone else is going to buy that car. If you don't do this, something else is going to happen. So number one, his favorite word is hurry. Number two, his voice always brings anxiety. I got I to gotta get this. I got to make something happen or I feel condemned. Number three, he always appeals to ego. And when I say ego, I don't mean he always makes you feel better about yourself. Sometimes he does. That's arrogance. But ego, a focus on self. And so he'll make you focus on what you did wrong, focus on shyness, focus on bitterness, whatever it takes to keep you focused on yourself instead of on God's work. So that's, that's Satan. Always brings anxiety, always in a hurry, always focuses on self. The Holy Spirit always brings peace. Never goes with ego. The Holy Spirit is always glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of the Most High God. And so um, there's that. And then always the, the Holy Spirit's favorite word is wait. The Holy Spirit loves to say, hold on, son or daughter. I got things going and you have a piece to play and a part to play, but this isn't it. Just wait. And sometimes it's very hard for us. But understand, hurry is not in the Holy Spirit's vocabulary. Wait. He brings peace. And he does not bring obsession on self. He glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you can tell the difference between those two voices. And so, so often, boy, I got to do a big thing for God. I got to make this happen. I got to raise this money. I got to go, go. And what do you feel? You feel anxiety, pressure. I'm in a hurry. That is not the Holy Spirit. And when we hear that, let's have a check in our spirit and go out and meet the Lord and say, what are you really having to say, Lord? I'm falling into my habit of listening to the devil. One of Satan's favorite things to do is to focus on past failures where they can bring condemnation or past successes where they get you to lull you into complacency. So he loves to get you into the past where you're obsessed with something in there or 
into the future, what he hates is the now, because the now is where the Lord is. When God met Moses in the burning bush and Moses said, who are you? He said, I am. He didn't say I always was and I always will be. I am. I am the eternal present. I am in the now. What does Jesus say? Every day, die to self daily. Because where Satan is, is in the anxiety of the future, of, of worry and, and, and the bitterness and the disappointment of the past. Where Jesus is, is in the right now. So this is where we want to learn how to focus. Now we're getting all this, this is a masculinity, but I want to set up how Satan lies to us. So we understand his lies when they come to us, because it's going to be, going to be very important as we move forward, looking at all, all, all the stuff that we're about to go into, some of which will become more and more countercultural, and you'll begin to see how much of what you accept to be truth is really compromised on scripture. So we see then when we do those very things that Satan does, we carry out the work of our enemy, right? So when we're judgmental, we're doing what he does, meaning accusatory, meaning condemning, uh, not, not judgmental using our discernment. When we slander, this is why first Corinthians five is so big into, Hey, if you see a slanderous person in your church, among other things, greedy people, um, don't even have some, some, anything to do with those people. Don't even eat with such people because slanders are doing the work of the devil. That's very important when it comes to masculinity because one of the keys to being a man is confrontation, healthy confrontation. When we slander, it's a form of cowardice. I'm going to talk badly about that person behind their back because I don't have the guts to go to them personally and say, here's the issue. Or probably always that case, but also my intent is not for their repentance and to bring them back in a walk with Christ, my intent is to tear down. That is what the devil does. And so when we slander, when we gossip, when we're passive aggressive, we are doing the work of the enemy. So let's talk about the four main lies of Satan right now so we can start to dig into the masculinity thing because this will be the setup from here on. The next lessons on will be directly about masculinity. The first lie, and this has permeated the church in a, in a horrible way, is that everything is gonna go to hell in a handbasket. Everything is gonna go down the tubes. And then we're going to get raptured and we're going to get out of here. So why do anything? That is absolutely the opposite of the gospel. There's a, a way we read Revelation. And if you're watching this on pray.com, there's some excellent uh, Revelation messages by Tim Dunn. And one of the things he talks about in there is Revelation was not written to us to know how to gain the system. Revelation was written so that we could be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. The Lord's telling us what's coming so that we'll have a desperate need to go out and serve mankind. We'll go out and give the gospel, we'll go out and warn people that judgment is coming. And wh whether you're post-millennial or a pre-trib or whatever those things, all of them boil down to the same thing. The judgment is coming on this world and we need to be busy about our father's business. And so there's just been this lie that has come permeated the church of passivity around the fact that, well, we all are just going to lose and then Jesus is going to come and clean it all up. And that is not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, we all win. There's some theological debate about how we win, but we do win. And our job as those soldiers, as we talked about earlier, those workers, those athletes competing to win is to warn people and bring as many people from the clutches of Satan as we can. So Satan's number one lie, why try? Just be complacent. Line number two, men and women are the same. And so First Timothy chapter two talks about the fact that women should be modest. This is Paul giving instruction to Timothy to how to instruct his church. He's the bishop of the churches of Asia Minor, and he's giving him instructions. And he's telling Timothy, tell the women to be modest. Tell the women that men are to be the teachers and the leaders. And here's why. 
and Paul points back to the beginning of time. A, man was created first and then Eve, and then, excuse me, man was created first and then woman. And then number two, women's sin first and then man. And you think, well, what's that all about? Like, why, why is that important? Because Paul's talking about from the very beginning of time, there's been an ordered creation. And we have this idea, even those of us who understand the obvious that men and women are different, that somehow God created men, God created women, and then God sort of said, oh, I'll give men the leadership role. That, that's not what we see from the creation story. God created Adam, and then Adam, being alone, saw that he did not fully represent the nature of God. He needed woman to complete him to show the nature of God, but each had their separate role. As we talked about in God said, I will be known by my male attributes. I will be known as father and as son and as he. So that we see the father telling man, you will be the leader. You will be the teacher. And, and Adam, upon seeing woman, names her woman. Adam has named all the animals, named everything in creation. And now he does the greatest thing. He names woman. And this creates what the, uh, the relationship is throughout scripture. I know that right there, I said we started to get a little more controversial, starts to strike people a little bit off, especially in Western culture. If you're listening to this in other parts of the world, you're going, big deal, that's obvious. But here in America, especially, that has started to change a little bit. Men have a role, women have a role. And Paul says at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, women will be saved by childbirth. That really strikes the American mind wrong. Like, what? One of the things we do incorrectly in scriptures, we're always thinking saved means not condemned. The saved means from hell. And in fact, what Paul's saying is men have a role of leadership and women have a role. And childbirth is a part of that role that gives them the greatest joy. Saved here means a life that's well lived, a life that Jesus says, well done. Again, we go, that doesn't sound like a good trait. And that goes to show the lies of Satan in our mind, because there's not a greater gift a human being could have than to be able to create life in her body. What an unbelievable, amazing thing. It's a relationship that a mother has with a child that fathers can never dream of having. There is a different relationship from moms and dads. There's a reason why football players say, hi, mom, when the camera gets on them and they don't say, hi, dad. What a great privilege. And we see right there, as it strikes us, is the lie that somehow leadership is better than creating life. Um, we have devalued, I said before that we were there was an attack on femininity, and that's what I mean. We have devalued the incredible gift of creating life and rather elevated over here leadership. Let's not do either. Let's make sure we take God's word as it says. So men, women, different. Part of that difference is women, by their nature then, will do whatever it takes to guard their family. They are much more ferocious about guarding their family than men are as a whole. I mean, you, you run into, what, a mama grizzly. That's the scariest thing to run into when you're hiking not a male grizzly with the babies it's the mama you, everything else forget about it because women are focused on the safety security protection of their nest their family men are geared towards seeing the bigger picture what is the whole picture that we see sometimes that a woman's attitude of of, of protecting family can cause them not necessarily the bigger picture so they may protect their family at the hurt of others this is why men and women need to get come together. Men need to understand the absolute rock solidness of the family that the woman brings. And women need men to say, maybe we need to let our son suffer the consequences of his actions over here as a bigger picture. Both things are true. Men and women are not the same. Line number three is we've taught a false Jesus. Where that comes into masculinity here is 
And this is where we really get into the masculinity of who Jesus was. Jesus was a man, right, in, in this earth. And Jesus was not a frail, weak human being. Jesus makes it clear, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. But we see, and, and you may question this for a minute, but just bear with me. We have this image of Jesus as very physically unhealthy. He almost looks like a heroin addict. He's skinny and his voice is weak and, and all these old movies that we see. In fact, Jesus was a, a rock mason. The Romans would come into Israel, they cut down the trees, and he's a carpenter. And what were carpenters? There were people who worked with rock. They carried huge boulders. They were moving those boulders around. They were chiseling them out. They were doing rock work. They're building homes out of rock. In other words, a carpenter was a guy who was extremely strong. He would have had big forearms and thick hands. And so you have this Jesus who is a muscular 30-year-old man. And he's got a bunch of disciples who are rough guys i mean fishermen back in those days were not fishing for fun and they weren't fishing with poles they had nets and they would have to haul these very heavy nets up up and down up and down all day long every day hauling the nets out cleaning them all you know these things full of fish and they were known for being fist fighters i mean throughout the history of mankind fishermen are always some of the roughest guys because you get into a school of fish and all the other boats would come in and try to pound you out and get their nets down and you have to fight them back to to get your nets and that's why we see that in james john uh, and Peter, that sort of rough, let's fight, let's take care of this Jesus. So you have Jesus, this strong rock mason guy with a bunch of really strong guys coming into town. And, and by the way, these guys would all be fairly uneducated. Now we start to see a mental picture of how gentle he was, how meek he was. But at the same time, we've mistaught that because Jesus was always confrontational. Let me say that again. Jesus was always confrontational. Sometimes it was a confrontation of making a whip and going in to, to defend the, his father's name. But also, you know, we, we have this picture of him at the, at the well with the, with the woman who is in sin. And he asks her to get him some water and she wants to have a theological debate. And what does he do? He goes right to her stuff and says, you've been divorced five times and now you're shacking up with a guy you're not married to. Well, well, that doesn't sound very gentle or kind, but he's getting right down to the issue of who she is and what happens. She gets saved and the town gets saved because Jesus was confrontational in love. But we've been taught this passive Jesus. When we went back to the fall, passivity is one of the things from the fall. Christianity is confrontational. Christianity's design and goal is to save people from the clutches of Satan. But on top of that, also we have caring for the oppressed, standing up for justice, pleading the widow's cause. We're going to get into that as we end here in, in Isaiah 117. Christianity is confrontational in a loving way, but we've been taught by Satan to not be confrontational at all. We've been taught in milquetoast faith, and that is not the faith that comes from Jesus Christ. Well, line number four goes all ties all these lies together, which is the Old Testament is obsolete. And there are some popular pastors today misteaching God's word and saying, you don't even need to know the Old Testament. Well, let me make it clear. The New Testament was written to people who knew the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you can't properly know, apply, and understand the New Testament, which is what we're seeing in the church today. We're seeing a watered-down, demasculinized gospel because people don't understand the Old Testament. And why does Satan want us to not understand the Old Testament? Because what is the overriding message we see in the Old Testament? If you said the fallenness of mankind, you, you got number one. Number two, it's that God loves people of faith, and faith means people of action. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the hall of faith. In the hall of faith, we have the most screwed up group of people you could find in the Bible. 
And God says, be like those people. Does he mean be screwed up? Of course not. What do those people all have in common? They all repented of their sins and none of them backed down from a fight. When a time came for something to be done, they in faith walked forward. And we have great heroes. And I would add Levi, who uh, Malachi chapter two talks about God extolling the greatness of Levi. And we know from Genesis, I think it's chapter 31 or 32, where Levi stood up for his sister Dinah when she got raped and, and, and his father was very upset with him. And God in Malachi chapter two, a thousand, fifteen hundred years later is saying, look at Levi, that's my guy. So in the Bible, over and over and over, Jehu, who God says, hey, go take out Jezebel. Over and over again, we see it's people. It's Rahab the prostitute in, in Hebrews 11. It's Jephthah. It's people who make mistakes, but when the time comes, they step up. And that is one of the reasons why Satan does not want us to know the Old Testament. He wants us to get this fake Jesus that's being taught and a fake idea of what it means to be a Christian and not understand that to be a man or woman of God is to be someone of action, someone who's about his father's business. Now we see why masculinity is, is on this decline, because if we don't have men who understand who Jesus really was, and again, I brought up the physical abilities of Jesus only to give you the mental picture. He's the son of God. His body was like, didn't matter. But I do think it's important because the weak, feckless Jesus that we see, we tend to get this mentality of him. In fact, we see Jesus in Revelation chapter one appears to John who's walked with him for three years on earth. Now John sees Jesus in his, his glory, glorified body. And what does John do? Falls on his face, terrified. And Jesus has to help him up and say, it's okay, John, it's, it's me. It's Jesus. You're the disciple whom I love, right? But for John to see what Jesus actually looked like was so terrifying, he fainted as one dead. This is the Jesus we serve now. That Jesus is asking for men who are proactive, who are bold, who are courageous, who will walk out in faith, who will lead their families, who will lead their wives, and who understand that women are different, First Peter, and act accordingly and stand up for his truth. And one of the ways that we, we combat all that, that, that destruction against that, is by understanding Satan, how he speaks to us, and what his lies are. So let me conclude this with this passage from Isaiah 117. I don't know that there could be a bigger mantra for men than this verse. This is Isaiah 117. Learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Can you see how every one of those things is confrontational? This is God giving us a command of how to act in the Old Testament, which is still applicable today. Correcting the oppressor is not a non-confrontational act. As an as a ex-police officer, I can tell you that my experience was that oppressors didn't take kindly to being corrected. Pleading the widow's cause, confrontational act, healthy confrontation, understand that with wisdom and grace and love and truth, but confrontation nonetheless. Now, as we start going off into our masculinity course, I think hopefully we get, we've laid enough of a groundwork on what is masculinity? Why does it matter? Why do we tend to act differently? And then what are all these issues and lies around it in our current culture? so that we can begin to now concentrate on what is a man and how do I become a man? So thank you for joining me in this course. This can be a fun ride.